Hello and welcome to the Unequal Exchange podcast. And we're going to be discussing today a new series where we go chapter by chapter, breaking down Unequal Exchange, the text. This original text, Unequal Exchange, uh, a study of the imperialism of trade by our Gary Emanuel. And today we're going to start just by looking at the introduction. So welcome. And Peter, I don't know if you had thoughts you wanted to kick it off with on the introduction. Yeah, yeah, the introduction is really cool. Uh, one one thing with this book and with the uh, introduction as well is that, and that's kind of the reason why we wanted to do this uh, this series, is because this book is really awesome. You know, we, we we love this book, but there are lots of references to different economists that um, are like if you haven't read the economists, it's kind of like you're, you're a little bit lost. And even though he writes with this kind of very clear, straightforward style. He makes these references that uh, are difficult to, to grasp if you don't know. So we're going to try and sort of break it down a little bit. And we'll also we'll also mention like, because he mentions lots of economists, but you don't actually need to read all of them, to understand them. Uh, there are like a couple that it's useful to read. Maybe we'll start by like, talking about that. Like, I, in, my, in my opinion, the, the two things that you kind of like really should read uh, if you want to, yeah, like understand this book best. Although I didn't read them when I read the book. And I still enjoyed myself, although I like didn't understand lots of it. Uh, but uh, the two things that are really useful to read are like uh, Ricardo's, like really this really famous nineteenth-century economist Ricardo's. Uh, there's like a chapter in his famous. He only had like one book, just like the Principles of Political Economy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's like a chapter there on foreign trade, and uh, you should totally read that. It's not like that complicated to read, but that's kind of where it gives this theory of comparative costs, which is then really, this is what kind of Emmanuel's book is kind of critiquing and what the introduction talks about a lot. And if you just read that chapter or even just like an overview of that chapter on the internet, and we'll talk about it a little bit today as well. Anyway, It's really helpful. And then the other thing that's really useful to read is Marx's, like in Capital Volume 3, you don't have to read all of it by no means, but just like the beginning part where Marx talks about uh, how like prices of production are formed. There's like a chapter on prices of production and like the uh, average rate of profit and how this kind of, you know, and that's like, yeah, that's also really helpful. Um, you don't even have to read all of Capital. You don't have to read Capital Volume 1. It's like Capital Volume 3 and just the beginning that talks about the price of production. Mm-hmm. So it's like 200 pages, you read all of it. But then, like, really, the chapters are kind of really important. It's like, I don't know, like 50 pages or so. Anyway. The Ricardian uh, foreign trade comparative advantage part should be very familiar to anyone who took uh, high school economics in the U.S. or really in the global north in general. They they very much emphasize uh, that example of Portugal and England, the wine and the cloth mm. being traded. And I remember, mm. I remember taking high school economics and learning that. Yeah. Well, maybe we could begin by like talking, I mean, just like on the uh, on the topic of the Portugal and uh, England uh, example. I mean, like one thing that I didn't actually really know, uh, I found that kind of said like a while ago and, I, and it's always stuck with me. Uh, and it's like a really interesting example of how like economics, you read economics and it sort of seems very kind of dry and re- attached from reality. But this and this whole like, you know, wine and, you know, and like Ricardo has this example of like, you know, Portugal and England and wine and cloth. And you're like, you know, who, who cares? Like, what does this have? Like wine cloth. But like at the time that Ricardo wrote this and Ricardo was a pretty like 
he was actually a pretty politically engaged guy. Like he was a businessman for ages. And then he was like, I don't know, he's like a parliamentarian or something, I'm pretty sure, like in the British parliament. And he had like lots of, he, you know, he was actually really engaged in the politics of his time in terms of, you know, that they're like the corn laws. And he was always writing all this stuff to like show why, you know, uh, his opinion about what to do with the corn laws is correct. And this was like really crucial. It's like, I don't know, it's like, nowadays with like NAFTA or whatever in America and you know really big debates that everyone's talking about in terms of economic policy and stuff and that everyone talks about that's like relevant for the lives of like you know working people and so on and politicians build their careers off it you know like Trump and so on and so on anyway and he was really into that and then what I'm going to get to is that like basically at the time that he was writing there was this Portugal England uh, free trade agreement uh and uh obviously it like totally like messed up portugal uh i mean it happened i'm pretty sure it happened before yeah i'm pretty sure it happened before he wrote this yeah uh but then it like it like messed up portugal portugal came really like poor and it was already pretty poor but then it just got way worse and then you know england's really rich and it's ex exporting its industrial uh, products which at the time were like textile products and then Portugal is just like this agricultural like you know wasteland with like you know unemployment and so on so it's funny that Ricardo an Englishman he's trying to prove that actually no, this is good for Portugal Portugal should keep on doing this free trade agreement with England because like I've got this theorem that shows why it's totally true yeah that's a great point and and the discussion around that in the text uh it's really interesting I, I guess we can get into I guess what are the presuppositions that Emmanuel is making so, I mean, he begins the book by saying, when we look back over the history of economic doctrines during the last 50 years or so, we're struck by the brilliant race that has been run by the theory of comparative costs. And he goes through and names economists and shows how they've been unable to disprove this single chapter on foreign trade. Maybe they've criticized everything else of Ricardo, but this chapter uh, has not been disproven. And he's also writing in the context of the publication of the Heckscher Olin theory which essentially, similarly to comparative costs, of course, he says it's just another reiteration of the same thesis, but argues with modern statistics was published in the 60s to show that countries should open up to free trade. And also, you know, definitely more insidiously basically says that countries should just trade whatever natural resources they have, uh, they shouldn't develop or seek to industrialize, especially if they're underdeveloped. So Emmanuel's text is really kind of criticizing, but also trying to see why the comparative costs of policy that Ricardo enunciated has had such a long legacy and how it is the basis really for this continuing unequal exchange that he elaborates on. Um, and of course, he'll argue later on is the basis of uh, the exploitation of the uh, underdeveloped nations by the global north. So I wonder if we could start by discussing a little bit or his attempt to reformulate the theorem on the basis of changing Marx's ideas of national value and looking to Ricardo's ideas of international value, but thinking through, I think, his approach looking still to a labor theory of value, but just continuing that on an international scale. Yeah, it's really interesting, Joe, because like uh, the, the quote, I mean, like, what I really like about this chapter is it really shows how materialist uh, Emmanuel is. Like, there's loads of different aspects in which Emmanuel's whole project is to give 
It's to be like basically more materialist than like the other theorists that have come that, that exist. And like he opens up this the chapter with this quote um, by like a quote by Marx about free trade, where it says, uh, "If the free traders can't understand why one nation can grow rich at the expense of another nation, we don't need to wonder." Uh, because these same gentlemen also refuse to understand how within one country, one class can enrich itself at the expense of another. And so Emmanuel is basically saying that the economists that think that free trade is the, the route for like, you know, mutual benefit and so on and so on. These are the same kind of bourgeois economists that think that uh, capitalism leads to like the mutual benefit of all classes. Um, so it's this theory of economics, which is actually like addressed up uh, you know, it's a ideology for class interests, which tries to say that like our class interests, bourgeois class interests, cap like capitalism is good for all classes. This is kind of like the definition of ideology, where you sort of try to say that your class interests are perfect for everyone. Um, but, um, and then the really interesting thing is that then he's saying, so, okay, so you have this class ideology, which says that free trade is good for everyone. But then when you have a class ideology, this always means that you're actually neglecting the interests of the other classes. Uh, and you have to start making up like basically like lies uh, about why this is good for other classes. And then you also end up losing, losing a touch with reality. And this is his really interesting critique of the comparative costs uh, theory. Because then he says, look, with Ricardo, Ricardo, he's like, this, he's like the, the OG, like classical uh you know political economist he like he's like he you know he was really important for marx marx was like this guy is just like basically the best in terms of giving a you know materialist labor theory of value uh and marx doesn't really actually even change that much really from ricardo at all uh, he doesn't really like critique manual apart from some, some, some kind of minor things but generally like marx is when you like read ricardo alongside of uh, marx they're like very very similar uh anyway but We'll get to this bit later with like the sort of theories of labor value, the two theories of labor value. But um, but then you know Ricardo's super materialist on the national level, but then when he goes to the international level, uh, with this theory of, of comparative costs, then all of a sudden, because of comparative costs, you can't actually uh, like basically international prices no longer have a relation to labor value the way that they do for Ricardo at national level. Um, and if you want to like sort of look at the sort of details why that is, you can just like check out. Ricardo's chapter on comparative costs. And it's like, you can look at, I'm really bad at maths, but if you just look at it for like three minutes, it'll make sense. Like it's, it's not really that complicated. Um, but basically at, at that point, there's no more relation to labor theory of value. And so then this is like, you know, it's, it's out of touch with reality. It becomes like this kind of weird, you know, and then, um, so Emmanuel is basically whole project. And he says this in this chapter, in the final footnote, he says this, and also at the end of this chapter, and also like, I mean, constantly throughout this chapter, he's repeating. Um, he wants to create a labor theory of value for the entire world that's like adequate for the global economy. Um, kind of ironic, because people often kind of accuse Emmanuel of being like this like non-Marxist or whatever, you know, but he's like, he's trying to be you know, the, the most Marxist, basically. Um, and uh, he sort of takes really seriously this idea by this like bourgeois economist, uh, Heckscher, who uh, had this theory of comparative costs, which was kind of like basically similar to other theories of comparative costs, but like a little bit more idealist, basically. Um, and uh, but then Olin said, look, 
the big problem for all of you classical theory, uh, classical you know political economists who want to rely on the labor theory of value, which Heckscher was like opposed to, is that you don't have a theory of international trade. And when you try and look at that, you end up abandoning the labor theory of value. And, uh, and Emmanuel's like, yeah, you're right. So we need to make a labor theory of international trade, trade basically. Um, and that's what he tries to do in this book. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, like, what I think is so cool about this chapter, like, you know, for instance, with like that first, um, first uh, quote by Marx, it's so, Emmanuel is so good at like it's so clear about the, the way that uh, econom economic, uh, economics uh, is like a class ideology. Um, and he has this really great thing, which I always find so fascinating, where he talks about how like before the 19th uh, century, like basically 18th century and before, like economics was dominated by like, you know, like so-called like mercantilists. And they were like really open, like, you know, obviously free trade is like, you know, doesn't exist. And, you know, each country to become richer should have like maximal protectionism and like sort of just like fuck over other countries. And they were kind of, and they were actual, you know, um, the people who wrote this, these mercantilist economists, they were actual uh, traders, like, and I mean, traders make sound very innocent. And these were like, basically, you know, like Western colonialists and they, they like went on their ships and they were like the East India Company and they were like, you know, go and enslave whole countries and stuff. And then they wrote these like texts about how to like, how to best maximize British wealth by like, you know, exploiting the colonies. But, but they were like really obvious, like, you know, of course we have to just like maximize our, our exports, make sure other countries buy our stuff and make them really poor and we'll make we'll become really rich and, and they're really open about this and then the free traders they're like oh no that's really bad of course capitalism is good for everyone and emmanuel says that like look the, the whole difference the reason why the mercantilists were actually saying what happens in reality because you know in reality to this day all countries even though economic science says you know free trade everyone should do free trade in reality every country i mean especially the rich countries they do a bunch of protectionism an exception in history almost all the time you have protectionism uh especially in the rich countries and why do you have this difference between like what the mercantilists said and then what the classical economists and everyone came after them said? and it basically says that because in the mercantilist period you didn't actually have any challenge to the capitalist system um and then when you have in the 19th century with when they start talking about how free trade is really great and stuff you had this because by that point you had like the workers movement in in western europe uh, and uh, and then you had like uh, and then just in generally like wondering about is is capitalism the ideal global system, and so they start to have to explain how oh no it really is you know like capitalism is really great on this on the world system and every other way, um, and they create this totally like detached from reality theory about the superiority of uh, free trade uh, because. Precisely because there was a challenge to the system. So another aspect of Emmanuel's analysis that we wanted to focus on, and one of the reasons that he's even writing Unequal Exchange to begin with, is obviously the turn towards uh, the third world and the sort of uh, prioritization of the third world's advancement and development. And Emmanuel writes, for example, that the advance of the third world to the forefront of the world's preoccupations has brought about a new crisis of consciousness in political economy. And then he goes on to say, it is necessary to explain 
the unexpected revival of protectionism among industrialized nations. Now it is necessary to explain the difference in levels of development and even the widening of this gap between rich and poor nations, despite the many centuries of exchange and free trade. And then one other note is, as he's discussing the declining terms of trade, uh, so that was on page, that's on page 20, and then on page 24, he says, um, these points that he's discussing, like why even mention the, the declining terms of trade, he talks about the demands being put forward by a new world, what he calls the third world. Um, and then explains that what is good for a developed country is bad for a country undergoing development and vice versa. The rich countries used to complain about foreign dumping. The poor countries complain today about the high prices asked by their suppliers. For the poor countries today, the problem is to make up the shortage of their factors, if necessary, importing them if they cannot create them by internal accumulation. So... I'm wondering what you think of Emmanuel's emphasis of the third world in the declining terms of trade and how it fits into, as we were discussing, the move towards an analysis of international value and the declining terms of trade. Yeah, yeah. So Emmanuel talks in this chapter uh, about like how this uh, this cat catalyst for this new discussion about terms of trade was this 1949 report uh, UN report by these economists, Prebish and Singer. Um, and uh, yeah, and you can read the report like online. Uh, it's not it's not too like technical. It's kind of, uh, and that's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and also, I mean, I think also especially like Prebish or anyway, he has like an articles. They both of them have articles sum summarizing and stuff. It's worth reading. Um, but um, yeah, what's important about these articles is that they basically uh, they show that the prices of raw materials have been declining over the past like 100 years or so, basically, uh, relative to the prices of industrial uh, exports. And so that means that like, you know, if the countries that export industrial products, they're able to buy more and more and more, but the products that export raw materials are able to buy less and less and less. And since third world countries were often kind of raw materials exporters, this created this discussion about uh, this kind of form of exploitation through trade. Um, and that's kind of where Emmanuel fits in, in the whole, uh, that's where his work comes from. But his work is really important because he actually critiques all the different theorists that come before him, like Prebish and Singh and all the other guys. Because at Merck, so he talks about all these different theorists, because they're all kind of, they're, they're not like, you know, liberal kind of apologists for, you know, free, uh, free trade and so on. They're trying to sort of solve the issues of the third world. But they have this kind of theoretical illusion where they think that the problem is just uh, these products themselves, that like raw materials are just inherently, inherently bad. Like they have inherently like uh, declining prices. Um, and uh, Emmanuel says, look, first of all, the first problem you have, uh, that this purely empirical problem is that there are lots of raw materials exporters that are very rich. Like for instance, Australia, New Zealand, they like their main exports are like the most raw materials imaginable. These are like iron ore, gold, milk, dairy, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and Emmanuel says, look, when you actually start thinking about it, um, he has this great stuff that he says, well, like sugar 
which is a third world raw material export, is just as many like manufactured in terms of it needs processing and so on, as is wine. In fact, it's more processed than wine is wine produced by like France and so on, or whiskey in Scotland. But France and Scotland are very rich, very high wage countries. And yet, for them, these exports are very, very primitive products. If you think about the, the processing required for wine and for, um, you know, these cheeses, well, I mean, well, and cheeses as well, but wine and, and whiskey, for instance, is basically no processing, right? Uh, sugar requires way more processing. So Emmanuel says, look, it's not, the, the thing is not uh, raw materials and uh, industrial goods. And this is also a reason why I really found Emmanuel's article work really interesting because oftentimes like, like Marxist dependency theorists and just generally people, they sort of say that like, you know, third world countries are poor because they export raw materials. But for me, I lived in my life, uh, some of my life I lived in Australia, some of my life I lived in other like, uh, kind of like third world countries. And uh, you, I like knew that Australia exports raw materials, like the most like primitive raw materials, but it's like incredibly rich. Um, so that's why Emmanuel's work really appealed to me. And then Emmanuel's second point is this more theoretical point where it's like, look, Nurkse, Prepesh and Singer, all these guys who are trying to argue that raw materials have this like inherently inferior basically demand structure, which means that for some reason their prices fall, they, they don't actually have any theoretical explanation for why this is. And they don't actually have a theoretical the uh, like system for it. And then he says, when you actually look at existing uh, theoretical systems of like, you know, economics and, and value and price and so on, and foreign trade, they always predict that in on the contrary, that raw materials prices should increase. And he talks like Ricardo, for instance, who's like kind of like the father of political economy. He had this idea that uh, raw materials prices will be constantly increasing because um, as population increases, the uh, rent will increase and then this will increase the price of raw materials. And he thought this is like the cause of the end of the world. He thought this was going to just like destroy like uh, capitalism and destroy like the whole, just like everything. It's just, he, th he thought it was awful. Anyway, he was really convinced about this. And then um, this was a very popular idea among basically all economists. Uh, like, Manual lists off different, like really famous economists like Malthus, all these other guys, they had very similar ideas. And then Marx as well had a similar idea as well. He seemed to subscribe to this idea as well. And then what's also very interesting is that Marxist theorists like uh, Nikolai uh, Bukharin, who's like a very famous sort of, you know, like uh, Soviet political, uh, you know, political activist and economist and so on. He also thought that the tendency, the so-called tendency, like the supposed tendency for the price of raw materials to rise this was the cause for imperialism because the imperialists have to then, you know, it's really important for them to control raw materials and stuff. Anyway, so Emmanuel says, look, our existing theoretical systems, they predict that raw materials uh, prices should rise, but then in reality, they don't really seem to. On the other hand, we have lots of countries that export like raw materials. He also talks about Sweden exporting timber, which is going to be a big sort of example for him later on in the book, but they're really rich. And how, how can we, and so basically he says that the, the thing is not, the, the trouble is not raw materials. It's not the thing of raw materials. Like he says that it's the data of Trebish, it's still really important because it shows that it's more important what he says. It's not that raw materials prices have decreased. It's that the prices for the commodities of the poor countries have decreased. And uh, many of the exports of the poor countries are raw materials, but that shouldn't lead us to identify these two things. And this is relevant today as well, where Poor countries export often manufactured goods after like the whole, you know, 1970s neoliberal production, you know, transfer to the global south. 
But then still, if you look at UNESCO statistics and so on, uh, their terms of trade have also been decreasing, even though they're specializing in manufactured goods. So it's a, it's a real, it's actually like a, um, uh, a, a proof of Emmanuel's argument. Um, so, and then this leads us back to like what we were talking about a little bit earlier, how Emmanuel's goal is to create a uh, theory of value, uh, basically, which is actually applicable to the international stage as well. And what he wants to do is use like a cost-based, so a classical kind of, just kind of like the labor theory of values based. But most importantly, it's based on the cost of production. It's based on production, kind of its materialist sense, not based on like demand or whatever, like other idealist rubbish. It's based on like cost of production. And then we're going to be able to explain um, how it is that the, um, the prices for third world goods have been declining. And then like, it's kind of obvious, like the, the reason why is because the cost of production are lower there because they have lower wages. Um, I can jump in with, I wanted to read a few quotes that sort of back that up. Um, one is on page 30, where Emmanuel just straight up says that the worsening of the terms of trade for primary products is an optical illusion. And it results mm -hmm. from a mistaken identification of the exports of the rich countries with the export of manufactured goods and of the exports of the poor countries with the export of primary products. So exactly what you were saying with the Prebish Singer thesis that poor countries exclusively export primary products, which even today for us, we know, of course, has reversed and to a large degree, uh, poor countries are exporting manufactured goods. And why is it that the price of those goods still does not raise is exactly sort of a continuation of Emmanuel's argument. And then you were mentioning Australia and on page, on page 27, he says, the terms of trade, at least in factorial terms of agricultural countries, such as Australia and New Zealand have not worsened. Quite the contrary, textile products, though manufactured, have fallen in price. So yeah, di just this discussion around why is it that we're not exclusively identifying the third world necessarily with, as is common, commonly done with, just agriculture with just the export of primary products, but seeing that any product that the third world exports and produces will be lower in prices. And to find the reason for this, Emmanuel begins to discuss a little bit of the analysis that he's gonna delve into and, and we'll delve into discussing later on. But I wanted to highlight in particular, the analysis that he's deriving that discusses the mobility of capital and the mobility of labor or the immobility of the two factors. So for example, on page 31, he notes that the sufficient condition for the comparative cost thesis of Ricardo is the immobility of capital and not as is widely supposed, the simultaneous immobility of both capital, capital and labor. So of course, he's going to go on to explain as he does at the conclusion of the chapter on page 33 that his theory presupposes that the capital factor is actually mobile but the labor factor is immobile can you explain a little bit why this is significant that emmanuel is making a differentiation between the two yeah so like uh this is definitely one of the key concepts that's useful to get your head around uh the, the actual mobility of factors is fairly simple. Uh, factors, it's basically the factors of production. This is what, what is involved in producing a commodity. 
Uh, and there's the labor factor, which is like labor power, right? Like uh, workers, you have to pay these workers and they do stuff, right? And they make these products. And then you also have the capital capital factor. Uh, and capital is, um, you know, you spend money to buy different means of production and so on and so on. Um, then the, the point is, is that when we talk about mobility, this basically means competition. So if you have mobility of the labor factor, this means that workers are able, if they get a low wage at one factory and then factory next door has a higher wage, they can switch jobs. They can move like they're mobile, right? They can go to the higher paying factory and you have competition of labor factor. Uh, and then same thing with uh, with the capital factor. If the, uh, if you're investing in one, you know, sector if you're investing in cars and cars have a low rate of profit like 15 percent rate of profit but then if you go invest in oil oil has a rate of profit of you know 30 percent uh then you'll move to the oil sector if, you, if, if it's possible for you to move to that sector then there's like mobility of the capital factor this competition of the capital factor um and um basically in the original comparative costs um uh, theory you have uh, immobility of capital and labor factor at the international levels. That means that uh, workers aren't able to move from country to country. Um, and then, same time, capital is not able to move from country to country. Um, and Emmanuel basically switches it around a little bit. Um, with in the in the Ricardo's time and so on, uh, Ricardo thought that capital like labor was immobile. Uh, but that there was still basically the same labor costs everywhere because everyone had, every worker was paid the, basically the biological minimum to survive. Uh, and then Emmanuel says, well, Marx's work went beyond that and showed that actually there were historical, like this class struggle impacts wages, uh, this historical and moral aspect to uh, wages in each country. And Emmanuel thinks that's great that Marx talked about that because we can see that in our world today where like different Political factors mean that in different countries you have much higher wages than other countries and so on. Um, but then, so Emmanuel says, yeah, like, so labor is still immobile, but there are very big differences between the cost of labor in different countries. And then capital is mobile, uh, which is what we see in today's world, right? Like capitalist, capitalism is global. Uh, capitalists can invest in whatever country he wants, basically, because, you know, we have neoliberalism and so on and so on. But this was also true, like, in Emmanuel's time. And it's been true for quite a long time, really, for like, at least, like, you know, two centuries or so. Um, then if you have um, the mobility of the capital factor, uh, then uh, that means that they, all of the different capitals get an equal rate of profit because they have competition, just in the same way as if all the workers can move around then they have equal wages because they're all competing for, the, for that. Um, so then you have a situation where, this is the situation Emmanuel is going to talk about throughout this book, where um, there's an equal rate of profit in all countries, but there's unequal costs of labor uh, in, in different countries. And he's going to see, and he's going to basically build a theory of price to see how these different costs of, costs of production and also then com uh, combined with the rate of profit will affect the prices of commodities exported by different countries. Um, and in terms of the, um, in terms of the specific um, comparative costs theory and how it relies on um, the immobility of the, uh, the factors and so on, um, 
it's a little bit of a technical explanation. I think we'll talk about it a little bit more like next time. Uh, it's not really, it's not like crucial to understand the main theory that Emmanuel develops in this book. Uh, but it is interesting to understand, I guess, um, it is interesting in terms of how limited the comparative cost theory is uh, for today's reality. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what I'd say. And, and the other thing I'd like to say about comparative cost that we didn't really talk about as much uh, a little bit earlier is that it, it tries to give this explanation for why free trade is, is this ideal situation because it increases production. And then Emmanuel's kind of big point is that, look, you can have an increase in production, but if this results in huge unemployment for one country, then it's not a it's not a win for that country. It's a lose for that country. If you have like, you know, if before you had high employment, but maybe slightly lower production, and then you have huge unemployment, but maybe a little bit higher production, that's not like that, that's catastrophic for your country. So uh, in this sense, like Emmanuel's really going against the uh, liberal thrust of the comparative cost theory. Um, and you can see this today with like debates about free trade, you know, and whether it's good for each country and so on. So it's definitely very relevant. Yeah, absolutely. And he's very, especially in the section where he discusses protectionism and free trade, very aware of the fact that there has been historically one standard for rich, high-wage global North nations and another one for poor mm. third world nations. And I wanted to just maybe conclude on this introduction by looking to how he sort of forecasts ahead one of the major points of his analysis that obviously is one of the most compelling conclusions of the book, where he says on page 31, as you were mentioning, Marx modified Ricardo's conception of wages by bringing into the conception of value of labor, a historical and social element. And then thenceforth, the quote, cost of living ceased to be an invariable datum as the basis of the wage. And in the absence of mobility of the labor factor, wages can vary both in space and in time. And then on page 32, the historical and social factor renders possible provided labor remains immobile, a variation in rates of wages between one country and another. And as Emmanuel talks about with some statistics, even in the introduction, he's, he's looking both to the rapid divergence between the terms of trade for the third and first world, but also to the rapid divergence between the wages of those two blocks of countries. And he's perceiving that wages have become so much higher in those nations conceived of it as first world countries. And ultimately, as we'll discuss throughout this series of analysis in, in every chapter, he's building towards saying there is a, a reason that the higher wages of these high wage countries are ultimately the, the driving force behind um, this exploitation through the terms of trade. So I think it's it's very interesting that he's forecasting this ahead a little bit by emphasizing, as you mentioned, that Marx's analysis of how wages are not just based on some kind of uh, abstract standard of living is the necessary presupposition to see how wages could vary so wildly and be so high in, in certain global North nations. Yeah, and he already talks about this in this chapter, in this introduction about how uh, previously economists, including Marx and uh, liberal economists in general to this day, they assumed that the world economy is tending towards like convergence between different countries, that the more capitalism you have, the more convergence. And uh, he also talks about how even critics of free trade, like Frederick List, they still assume that free trade is good in the long term, but then in the short term, maybe you have to do some protectionism. 
but Emmanuel is saying that, like in the long term, he's give, he's he's trying to give a general theory of why uh, protection of of the necessity of protectionism uh, and why free trade is bad for the you know the majority of, of the earth basically for the, the third world poor countries. Um, so it's definitely a very ambitious ambitious project uh, and uh, one that really hasn't been really attempted. You know, usually um, there's you know either other theorists of of uh, you know underdevelopment and imperialism they often like for instance andre gunde frank uh they often sort of talk about different aspects of inequality and sort of but they don't really give a general theory of it and i'm trying to give this general huge theory of of why we have this huge divergence between the rich minority and the poor majority and that's what makes this book so so compelling because no one else really try to, tries to do that in a rigorous manner um yeah, that is stuff.